Welcome to another episode of the Iron Forge podcast. This is a podcast where I interview clients, entrepreneurs, team members, and investors to hear their unique take on entrepreneurship and the startup community. My name is Chris Roach. I'm, of course, your host, and I'm delighted to say that on today's episode, I am joined by one of my good friends, longstanding Iron Forge client, and the Chief Operations Officer of Provider Pool, a true trailblazer in the entrepreneurship industry, Mr. Adam Hoffman. Welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks. I'm uh, excited to be here with you, Chris. I'm excited to have you on. I was I was more excited and more proud of my introduction there. I, I was I thought for a second I was going to get tripped up as it was quite a long introduction. So no, I'm yeah, glad I to. Almost, uh... I almost left the call, but I'm you know I'm. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Adam, can you uh, just provide a, a brief background on Provider Pool and what exactly the the company you're working on right now does? Totally, and I should say that Chris and I have known each other for years now. Um, as you know, both being founders years ago and getting to know each other, so it's really cool that we've gotten to work together as peers, as founders. Then when I worked with you know as a client of Iron Forge, and then now you know just catching up. Uh, always awesome to chat with you. So uh, Provider Pool is a a marketplace trying to sort of transform the way that low and mid-level healthcare workers think nurses lab techs basically the folks that actually keep our healthcare industry turning find their jobs and and move through their healthcare careers awesome and how big is your team that you're working with right now with provider pool yeah so there are four full-time employees we went through Techstars over the summer through a Techstars program so we received investment from them and then you know all the mentoring that entails and things have been uh, just going crazy since then. So the company is headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, which is um, where I was living when we met, obviously. And uh, though I now live in Pennsylvania, it's, you know, I continue to work remote. We've got a couple other remote employees and, and things are just going gangbusters. So we're right now in the St. Louis metropolitan area, working with a number of long-term care facilities. Uh, we've doubled our revenue month over month for the last several months. And, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of people are hurting right now, I think, and healthcare workers are more important than ever. And so the timing has ended up being perfect for, for our venture. That's awesome. So you guys are kind of finally hitting that hockey stick curve that every entrepreneur puts on the startup pitch deck and most never get anywhere near it. So you guys are kind of finally hitting that point where it's starting to, the growth is accelerating rather than kind of plateauing. Yeah, no, it's been, it's been awesome. And like, you know, as I mentioned, you and I have started our businesses in the past and we both know how hard it is to get to that point where you feel like the marketplace is really receptive to what you're offering. But uh, with Provider Pool, it seems like we've hit it. And this, this is an adventure that I, I wasn't there since day one. You know, the, the founder, Jana Westbrook, was a nurse for 10 years and a nursing admin. And so she had a really acute understanding of the market and the pain and the problem. And I joined about, uh, you know, a little more than six months ago at this point. Uh, to really, you know, help take this thing to the next level. And so she started the business a couple of years ago, and then it's been in 2020 that we've we've really started to find that, you know, that product market fit and and uh, you know help help the healthcare workers really find their place. So it's been a really yeah, in the last couple of months. That's awesome. And you're the only are you the only employee that's remote right now? Is everybody else based in St. Louis? Of the other team members? Yeah, we got two two others in St. Louis and then one in Michigan and with me in Pennsylvania. And you know, it's if the pandemic hadn't happened, I think we'd probably all be in St. Louis right now. But I mean, as everyone knows, it's folks are, you know, trying to stay close to family at the moment and it's no different if we're ten miles apart or a hundred miles apart. We're all talking over Zoom anyway, so Yeah. How have you found making that switch from going to, to kind of a full remote? Or is that something that the company handled relatively well and kind of quickly once that did happen? Yeah, I think, you know, I'm curious for your answer to that question as well, just with Iron Forge, because, you know, I, it's challenging, no doubt about it. But as we've mm -hmm. seen, you know, across all of society, it's sort of like, you know, to a certain extent, it's adapt or die. With one of my earlier businesses, we had a, 
remote first team. So I felt like I had some training wheels there to make this easier. But, you know, I think no matter if someone is the most successful entrepreneur in the world or just starting, you got to get used to how do you create social interaction? How do you hold yourself accountable? How do you still have uh, team bonding? Those challenges don't go away no matter how successful your business is. Um, I don't know how have things been going on your guys' end on Iron Forge. Yeah, it's definitely been a challenge switching to fully remote. We've we had a little bit of an advantage of the fact that a lot of our a lot of our team members are nationwide. We do have some employees, obviously worldwide as well. So for us, we were used to having certain team members be remote, and then suddenly everybody was put in that same boat. And I know for for me specifically with kind of the sales relationships, we'd always had a remote team, so mm. it didn't change too much on there. But I know with some of the developers that were going into the office, obviously we have the you know the office in Madison, Wisconsin. They go into the office, and suddenly you're not sat across the desk. So when you're trying to solve a problem originally you can just say hey like let's take a look at this together now you're having to schedule time and it's it's being a little bit more organized uh, one of the things that i think we've done very well to keep the sense of community is that we do have you know standard and, and set up weekly meetings as either departments as the, you know the entire company so this morning you know we had our coffee hour which is where everybody in the company has the option to join and it's an hour long um, it's at 7 30 in the morning pacific time so for me i usually do it when i'm you know just getting up having a coffee um, i was on the actually on the bike this morning when we did it and you know some of our, our employees that are on the east coast for them it's more of a lunchtime thing so it's that for me is something that allows the 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 camaraderie to still exist when you do work remote and then it's strange how close you can feel to someone by now having never met them you know you're only on zoom calls with them for Mm. some of our employees we've still never met and it's it's quite strange to see how close you can come to somebody without actually ever meeting them i think that's kind of testament to the way that our company and our and our our, our values the way we set it up but also just how easy it is now to do a remote company compared to probably you know 10 years ago Oh, I agree. I can't even, you know, we're lucky. We came up in this age where sales predominantly is inside sales. You know, we can make a phone call from anywhere. We can have a demo from anywhere. Um, I only, I think back to, you know, like the, the entrepreneurs that came before us 20, 30 years ago who were going door to door, just trying to get someone to open the door to make a sale. It's just totally mind blowing. <laughs> I remember when, you know, we were working with you recently back on the custodian platform. And although our team and the Iron Forge team were not in the same place geographically, it ended up being a seamless working relationship. So just based on that experience and how we, how it felt for us as clients getting to know you all, I'm certain that on, you know, your, your internal side of things, you must be able to take those learnings of how you manage clients remotely and just exactly. keep your company moving well too. And that's a, that's a question we get asked by clients all the time is, well, I'm in, you know, I'm in Montana, I'm in Washington, you know, I'm in, in, in Portland, whatever that is how am I going to work with you guys when you're in San Diego, you're in Wisconsin, you know, you're in Florida, how is that going to, why would I work with you and not just that local shop down the road? And now obviously the, the more nationwide you can search, the, the chances are you're going to get a high quality development shop, you know, just by pure statistics. So for us, you know, that's always been the argument we make is that we're here to be your technology team. And, and over the last you know five years of doing this, not that we've perfected, but we've definitely increased our ability to work with teams remotely and make, you know, perhaps startups and, and companies that have never really had that experience, put them in, in a position of comfort where they're used to being able to do that. And it, it's not this overwhelming, scary thought to, well, I'm going to work with someone that I've never met. You know, I'm going to pay someone $50,000. We've never even met in person. You know, that to some people is a, is a, is a crazy concept. And that's something that we've really focused on trying to kind of streamline that process to make sure that everybody's comfortable with that. And then you feel like we are sat in the office next to you and you can reach us anytime. And that's been something that I know over the last five years, we've put a lot of time and effort into making our clients feel more and more comfortable with that yeah i think it's also you know particularly challenging for 
non-technical founders like I was, you know, when I started my first business. And it's just so hard to know whether you're making a good investment or not, because you may not even fully understand what goes into building a technology product. And I think one of the great things that's happened in entrepreneurship over the last, you know, 10 odd years and increasingly over the last five years is that the playing field is getting democratized a little bit more whether it's a no code platform that allows someone to crank out, try to crank out their own MVP or a shop like you guys, where you're willing to walk them through the whole development process all for the way from zero to one. The opportunity exists now for non-technical founders, maybe people that have mm-hmm. great domain expertise and acutely understand a problem, but don't know how to sit down and code or build a, a prototype to get their foot in the game. But I think that's for me as a non-technical founder, it's been a steep learning curve over the last five years of, you know, how do I speak the lingo enough to be dangerous enough to understand what my engineers are working on with you guys? I didn't have that concern because you sort of met me where I was at. You understood I wasn't coming in with big technical background. And so you were able to trans, I mean, it was, it was literally you on some of the calls translating for me what was going on in the development side. That to me still sticks out in my mind. That's the standard I still hold even our own internal development team to is you need to make it. So the CEO you know, who, you know, in our case, like I said, Jenna, nurse and nursing admin, no coding background to speak of. She yeah. needs to be able to understand how the product is moving and what's changing. That's something I feel like you guys nailed years ago when I worked with you for the first time. It's still impressive to me. Well, that's, you know, and I appreciate the kind words. And that's really our, our, bread, and, our bread and butter has always been non-technical founders. We, we refer to them as, you know, industry experts. Those are the people because they can come to us and, and similar to it sounds like your current CEO, they know the problem. They know what they want to do for the solution. They've no idea how to build it or they don't have the bandwidth to be able to build it themselves. So when they come to us, we turn them through that discovery process. We lay out everything of what's going to be involved to actually be able to develop this software. We can literally show you a line by line item of everything that's going to take to do this. We can help you understand the product roadmap and then we'll give you a fixed price bid to develop it, which in the software development industry goes against everything that has been done prior because normally it's, hey, I want to build this. Great. That sounds like a $100,000 app. And you know what? 200 bucks an hour, I'll give it my best go. And that's kind of the problem is that's where clients get burned. And that's where in this industry, there's a lot of deception. So by, by kind of leveling that playing field and, and really increasing the transparency of this is what it's going to be. And we had uh, Nicole Sadow, one of our, our clients on this podcast uh, last week, and she was talking about the, the value of the clickable prototype where you can actually see what the product is going to look like before you build it. You know, it's literally a 3D model of the product. So you can see exactly what it's going to be. And from a non-technical founder standpoint, because again, I was a client of Lionforge before I was Lionforge. So I've been through this process. That to me was the biggest difference in being able to understand it because I did not understand how software works. I knew how to sell, but I didn't understand how software works when I was originally a client. And that, that for me allowed me to really see kind of a, you know, a, a window into the future of what this platform is going to look like and then how it's done doesn't really matter to me. It's, you know, what, what technology stack to me didn't make a difference. I just needed the product to be built. And I trusted IM 40s expertise to say, Hey, we're going to develop it in a, you know, a pern stack. Great. That's don't know what that means. Sure. Sounds great. So we'll, we'll kind of go with that option. It's uh, now, obviously I like to think I, I know what that means. I know enough to be dangerous now. Um, but back then, you know, three or four years ago, I, I had no idea what technology stack we were building it in. I just needed something that worked and I could sell. Yeah, no, it, this actually takes me back years to my first business check the queue that I started you know, coming out of college, my senior year. And the premise was an attempt to track the wait times at airport security lines. So, you know, decrease travel or anxiety, tell folks how long they'll be waiting. And on the flip side, help airport security staff better, right? So it seemed like there was this intuitive win when I was coming out of college. I didn't know what it took to build a technology product. I didn't even have particular subject matter expertise with aviation, except that I knew that I had been like an anxious traveler 
for years and had gone through security many times. Like that was my experience with the industry. Uh, and I spent, you know, a lot of money and a lot of time, our investors capital and some of my own capital and our employees and our team's time trying to construct first just the product designs, then the MVP, and then, you know, eventually a full working product. And we signed paid contracts with airports, which are, you know, notoriously difficult to secure because of how long the purchase process is. There are these big municipal agencies. And we we're this little shop, you know, working at a co-working space in St. Louis. And we totally fumbled the ball when it came time to actually successfully implementing our platform. Because as a CEO, I was, you know, I was, it was the blind leading the blind. I just had no mm -hmm. idea how to, you know, do any of that product development process. And we ended up pivoting the business because, you know, it turns out that tracking wait times is a really tough technical challenge. It's not just software, but there's a hardware component. I mean, I didn't know any of that. I dropped the ball on both the software and the hardware side. And so when we pivoted the business, I was determined not to make the same mistakes I had made before. I made new mistakes. It was wonderful and exciting. <laughs> I didn't make the same mistake. I remember the, one of the ways I was, the, one of the first things I remember, you know, you were, we were friends during this pivot and realizing like, okay, we need to get the technology piece right. If we're going to go out there, we know there's a market. It's not hard to sell this thing, but we cannot afford to disappoint our customers again after we've gone through this arduous sales process and gotten them ready to, you know, send us a check. We got to make sure the technology works. That was the first time we worked together, I think, was when it came for that pivot. And it was like, all right, no more, no more messing around. You know, the stakes are higher this time. And I think that's the, the, biggest, the biggest issue we run into when we have, you know, especially startup clients that work with us, if they've, if they're a little bit kind of a, a, an inexperienced entrepreneur and they're coming in, it's perhaps the first product or the first part from the building. And we say, hey, this is going to be, you know, $150,000 to build. And they go, well, I've got an Indian development shop that's quoting me $50,000 to build that. That sounds like a way better deal. And at times we just kind of have to sit there and go, okay, but that's the, we'll see you in six months. Let's see how this goes. And, and that's a problem is you don't want to kind of oversell it. And some people have done that, don't get me wrong, I mean, and been extremely successful. I think I've heard of two people in my entire duration with Iron Forge that have managed <laughs> to pull that off. You know, that, that half a percent. There are dozens of us. <laughs> dozens. <laughs> you know, pe people have managed to do that if they have existing relationships and, you know, whatever else. But, you know, as an entrepreneur that comes in and, and you say, you know, hey, this is what we want to build. And we say, right, we can guarantee this outcome for you. This is the price. This is what it's going to be. But you remove that area of risk. I do think as a newer entrepreneur, sometimes that, that the, the risk associated with not having a guarantee is not, it's not really valued as high as it should be. And then usually the second time around, that's where entrepreneurs go, I've been burned in the past. I can't afford to take this risk again. It doesn't make sense. And that's kind of, you know, for us, when we have entrepreneurs who say, hey, we're going to try this ourselves. Okay, great. You know, ho hopefully it works out. But a, a lot of times they end up coming back to us. And that's why we say, right, this is where, you know, you, you, kind of, you can't afford to do this again. We have to get this right because you need to get to market. At the end of the day, if you've got clients, if you've got customers, if you've got investors, you've got to get to market and it's got to work. And you can't afford to have a 12-month process where it doesn't work again. And that's where I think people run into this kind of slippery slope of then, you know, trying to desperately hire the right people and, and ultimately spend more money than they need, they need to on the first product. No, I totally agree. I think that it's just like every part of entrepreneurship, investing in the right development team, you know, there's a learning curve associated with it. But like you said, we don't, we don't conceptualize of that learning curve until you've been through it. Whereas something like raising investment dollars, okay, I can understand, you know, I have to learn how to play this game, making complex B2B sales. Okay, you know, there's, a, there's an art and a science to this, and I can go take a class. But it's one of those things where unfortunately, it really is hard to communicate to founders until they've until they've lost their time and money once, 
you realize how, how high the stakes are. It's like, yeah, you can pay 25 grand to these guys and hundred grand to us later to unmess up what they did. Or you can pay 50 grand to us now. And we're not going to, you know, we're going to give you a set timeline. We're going to make commitments to you and we're going to follow through on them. I think that especially first time founders, you know, one of the things I've gotten much better, and I'm sure you have too, over the years of running businesses, you know, some of which have been successful. Some of my businesses have been unsuccessful too, but it's nice to have tasted both a little bit is just how you conceptualize of a business an organization. Mm-hmm. You know, there are different functions in these days for most, you know, every technology company having working software or reliable prototype is like one of the building blocks of the company. You can only get so far as an excellent salesperson if you can't deliver. And by the way, you can only get so far as an excellent fundraiser if you don't have visuals or a prototype that you can show as well. So I think my hope is that, you know, for entrepreneurs sake, more and more folks will go through the path, you know, that we have and maybe learn from our mistakes instead of having to make the same mistakes themselves and just realize that technology is a worthy investment to make because sometimes you only get one shot with a customer, with a prospective investor, with a prospective employee. And that's the thing, it's, it's very easy for me to sit here now on my high horse and say, well, if, you know, if you're an entrepreneur, you need to work with Iron Forge. When I was first starting off, I didn't work with Iron Forge the first time. I didn't work with Iron Forge the second time. I actually worked with Iron Forge the third time. So I made two mistakes. I outsourced it twice. I, I lost you know, a lot of money doing that. And then for me, it then got to the point where I was like, all right, like, I, I just, I need the guarantee to be able to do this. I need a platform live. And, and you know, like you say, you know, I consider myself quite a good salesperson. You can sell stuff up to a certain point. And at the end of the day, if the product doesn't deliver, you just kind of, it's all smoke, smoke and mirrors in that point. And that's where I think you run into issues of where, you know, your clients and your early adopters who, you know, were your biggest cheerleaders then get frustrated with you. And that was the situation I had is that when I couldn't deliver on the product and I was selling it, you know, months in advance. And then I knew in the back of my mind, this is not going to work. I still remember actually driving to a, a convention up in, actually in Philadelphia. I'm driving up there and I'm, I'm on the phone with, uh, you know, one of my international developers trying to get him to fix bugs as I'm driving through the night to get to this convention. <laughs> And then running demos in person in front of, you know, 20, 30, you know, uh, potential clients, knowing that if I click the wrong button, this whole site's going down. So I could, I had to be very careful where I was clicking on the prototype. And we still actually made sales on there. And back of my mind, I'm thinking, we just need something that works. And, and it was actually after that convention, I, I called uh, someone at the time who dealt with a lot of sales. And I said, I, I mean, I, I, need, I need the product. I've shown that I can sell it when it doesn't work. Imagine what I can do when it does work. And that for me was kind of that turning point of, I need... I need something that's going to be reliable and I need a product that is, is going to get me to market and not just take that, that certain amount of pressure off my plate. Because as a non-technical founder, when you are trying to deal with bug fixes, with developers, really things you don't understand, it can become quite overwhelming because you're being told one thing and you don't know whether that's good advice or not. So when you partner with someone like Iron Forge, you have that kind of that technical expertise in your corner and if you do ever want to bring on, you know, a full-time CTO, if you do ever want to bring on, you know, a full-time developer, you have someone that can sit there and say, hey, you know, this developer is a good fit for this reason, or perhaps, you, you know, you may want to look at this as well. I think that's, again, something that's undervalued when, when entrepreneurs are first starting their business, kind of having that technical expertise in your corner. Agreed. Two things you said that I want to pull out. The first is that I think no matter how good a salesperson you are, eventually you hit a blocker where the technology needs to be there right? You could be someone like us who was able to, you know, sell a product that off a PDF screen that we were clicking through or that we had drawn in Microsoft art or whatever, but eventually we need the technology. Some folks approach it and like, they're not a phenomenal salesperson without a working product, but the working product can get them there and help them close the deals. And so either way, you know, no matter what your path is, you eventually need to be able to deliver. And the other thing you said, which for me was a huge light bulb moment a couple of years ago and something that took me a while to internalize as a new entrepreneur was, 
it is hard to find a great CTO, co-founder, if you're a non-technical founder. You know, there's a finite pool of folks that have the risk tolerance and the experience and the know-how to and the, be able, the ability to be a jack of all trades, such that they can be a founder of a startup, let alone have the technical skills to do it, let alone that you've happened to cross paths with, let alone that have the same passion for the problem that you do. So you start to narrow it down. It's really friggin' hard to find a <laughs> co-founder, a technical co-founder, who then you have to be a good fit with them personality-wise and work as a team. And I think folks just assume, oh, it can't be, there are a million people that can code out there. That doesn't mean they'll be a good CTO. That doesn't mean they'll be yeah. a good entrepreneur or a good partner for you. So, you know, again, it's like, there's a tough learning curve there that sometimes it's better to go for, you know, the guarantee, even if they're not in-house, even if Iron Forge isn't, you know, my CTO 100% of the time because they've got other projects going on. It's like, I would take what you all offer over 99% of the folks that I could partner with, you know, every day of the week because it's really hard to get it right. And as you know, team matters more than anything else and that ability to execute early on. No, I, I agree 100%. And I, I remember being told uh, right when I was first starting, you know, finding, the, finding your CTO, your technical partner is more difficult than finding your wife. Now, I've managed to find my wife. So I, I never found a technical partner before I am forward. You know, I could never <laughs> find a CTO. So I can firsthand say, absolutely, you know, that, that is true. And it's, for me, what makes you laugh is when, you know, entrepreneurs say, hey, I'm going to go and find a, a full-time CTO and technical founder um, who is a non-technical founder. It's kind of like trying to find a Chinese translator if you don't speak Chinese. You've no idea what they're saying. It, it, it's, it's, you know, you're in this kind of situation where you want to go and find someone, but you can't qualify them. And that's where, again, you know, you have these issues. And, and we have clients that have come to us that say, hey, you know, I, I have a technical founder and they own this much of the company. And you sat there thinking, okay, this is at some point, this is going to end in tears. And, and that's unfortunately, you know, what we see time and time again is these, you know, these, these college roommates, these college founders, you know, when the company gets to a certain level, quite often the team that starts it is not the team that's going to be there in two years time. That's why, you know, and we can go into a whole different thing with equity there, but that's, that's something, you know, to be very careful of when you, when you're, when you're first starting off is, is really where you're, you're allocating your resources. Um, let's talk a little bit more kind of about that, that switch from check the queue to custodian, because, you know, like you said, you know, at this point you've, you've raised and how much money did you raise at this point? If you mind me asking, you know, we had raised a couple hundred thousand dollars. So you raise a couple hundred thousand dollars. You're building out this product, which again is, is more than you know a lot of entrepreneurs ever fundraise. So you've raised a couple hundred thousand dollars. And had you spent it all? Did you have some that was left over? What kind of situation were you at when you made the pivot? Yeah, no, I mean things. Look, things things were you know dicey. I think it's fair to say one of the things I had done well was communicating pretty proactively with our investors. And so you know, like we just talked about, we weren't we we hadn't raised like million you know a hundred million dollars or some crazy amount. We were much more in the we'd raised from a couple of institutions that had given us a fifty or hundred thousand dollar check, and then we had some angels who had put you know collectively a couple hundred thousand dollars in. And so there were a bunch of different folks on the cap table, stakeholders we had to keep engaged. And I think we did a pretty good job of and continue to to this day communicating with them and sort of managing expectations. With as you said, could be a whole other podcast. It's just about how to affect. And something I'm mm -hmm. still learning. You know, it's like, how do you, you know, how do you keep these folks who have trusted you with their time and their money? Um, how do you keep them aligned with your vision and on board and informed? So we were doing a pretty good job of that. And so we had enough money in the bank to be able to make this, make this pivot from tracking wait times to what it really turned into custodian ended up being soliciting real-time feedback over text message and tablet from customers of high traffic venues. So some airports, 
places like stadiums, office buildings, a movie theater. Uh, one of our clients that still loves the product is actually a ski resort up in Washington State. So, you know, these high traffic venues, those type of places mm -hmm. that have, by the way, been hit pretty hard by, by COVID-19, unfortunately. But, you know, as you said, so things, things were tough. We had a full-time team of employees. We had investors who had expectations and demands. And then we had a series of prospects and customers who had signed contracts that we weren't being able to deliver for with check to queue. And so the pivot was challenging, no doubt, you know, over the course of several months, we ended up pulling it out. But I remember one moment that directly relates to this idea of how hard it is to find a technical co-founder. You know, I had a CTO who had, you know, left a, a pretty solid corporate track and she was in her twenties, you know, late twenties and come over and join us. And again, I, you know, first time starting a business, I had no sense of, again, what makes a good co-founder. And this is where it's, it's not just do they have the technical expertise, it's do they have the desire to commit the next three to five years of their life to this? Do they have the risk tolerance? And I was driving and then my phone beeps and it says, you know, I've gotten a Slack message, a direct message, an internal messaging service that says, please see your text messages from the, my CTO. I check my text message. It's a text from her. It says, can you please check your email? I go to my email and open, you know, this is a classic engineer. Yeah. She wanted to communicate through four different channels. The email says, it's in, can you check the Jira ticket? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I, I open the, my email and it says, I have to resign, you know, immediately. I'm like, ah, all right. <laughs> so check it out. It's like out of nowhere, blindsided technical partner leaves. Yeah. And, you know, that's when we started working together was when that person had left and it was like, holy moly, I need a group of people to come in and just shore this up. I've got yeah. employees, customers, investors. I've got to answer to all of them. I need someone that I can count on on the technical side to make this pivot happen. No, I, I think that's unfortunately, you know, the, the, the story, how it happened is, is unfortunate for obviously the way it worked out. But I, I think it, it ultimately led to you having the ability to, to work with a company like ours and really take you to that next level with it. And, and I think you would have always kind of struggled to get there if you hadn't been able to make that leap to, to really, like you say, have a solid team that's going to be able to go there. And then when you made the pivot, you know, how did you realize what you were going to pivot to? Because you know, there, are, there are some similarities between the, the two companies. If you don't mind kind of explaining the difference between Check the Queue and, and Custodian, um, how did you decide, hey, this is now the direction we want to go in compared to, you know, I'm sure there were five other ideas you had of, of ways you could move. Yeah. So I think this comes back to another one of those lessons, you know, like hard fought lessons that you and I have both learned just through sort of the entrepreneurial grind is the importance of listening to the marketplace. And this is part of why I think some of the best founders are folks that have domain expertise or subject matter mm -hmm. expertise, because they already have an innate under earned understanding of what the marketplace wants. So with Check the Queue, we were selling this wait time tracking technology to airports. And one of these, a large airport, we had signed this pilot contract with, you know, big, big win for us. This was going to catapult us to success. And we weren't able to ultimately deliver on it. As I mentioned, the technology, we couldn't get it to work. But they also shared with us some other pain they were feeling about having a hard time maintaining a good customer experience in the airport and, you know, keeping their restrooms and their common spaces clean. So we had sort of filed that away. We're like, all right, maybe we can deal with that, you know, once we solve this wait time issue. But as we're having trouble dealing with the wait times, we realized maybe there is an opportunity here to use some of the, you know, the real time technology we had been developing on the software side to see if we can help them with their customer experience. And so that's what Custodian ended up being born out of this direct request from a customer. We ended up working with you all. And what it turned into is, you know, at places across the country now, you walk into the restroom or a common area and it says, do you have feedback? Do you have complaints? You know, instead of writing down a, you know, a handwritten feedback note that gets lost in some secretary's desk, you can just pull out your phone and send a text message, or you can hit a tablet with a smiley face or unhappy face. 
So we ended up doing this full pivot from behind the scenes, B2B technology, anonymously tracking how long people were waiting to customer facing platform to solicit feedback in real time and help places respond. Awesome. Awesome. And then from there, once you made the pivot and you start to presumably gather the traction, at what point did you then say, this isn't working out for, you know, I don't know if it was for you personally, if it was for the whole business and you then made that leap to provide a pool. At what point kind of chronology did that happen? Yeah. So the business actually continues to run profitably today. So we've got customers in a number of States, which is awesome. A couple of airports, as I mentioned, some office buildings and the uh, ski resort as well. I think I personally faced some tough questions and the business did too, when COVID-19 set in, because, you know, like so many businesses, large and small, our clientele are specifically places that have a high volume of traffic, mm-hmm. sports stadiums, office buildings, airports, the types of places that have been shut down for the last, you know, eight months. So what's been nice is, you know, we were able to put some of our customers on payment plans. Some of the places, you know, some of our airports are starting to see an uptick in traffic. It looks like our the ski resort is going to have some, some folks there this this winter, they're going to be carefully opening up. So we have some customers who are still using it, but we decided to, you know, allow our full-time staff to pursue other opportunities in the meantime, because new sales were hard to come by for a lot mm-hmm. of this year. So I personally started doing some consulting work. I had clients in you know Pennsylvania and St. Louis and one in Boston and just a variety of stuff, everything from uh, helping with operations to building out a, a go-to-market strategy to I'm now working with a financial planning firm out of Boston where I was raised and we're helping them redesign their whole website and do some marketing materials, you know, stuff to just sort of keep me busy and keep paying mm-hmm. the rent. But one of those consulting clients was Provider Pool. And after three months of working with them, it was like, dang, there's really a great fit here. You know, I was very all the earned skepticism we just talked about from co-founders and co-workers. You know, yeah. I really didn't want to run into a bad situation again. So after three months of working alongside day in and day out, Jan and Rodney, you know, the two co-founders, I was like, all right, this is a great place where I can make an impact. These are people I want to work with for a while and the business is about to take off. So I joined and then we went through Techstars and then as I mentioned, the rest is history. But, you know, just like you, it's sort of the entrepreneurial bug, I think. I always like to be working on just having something on the side, you know, just a little mm-hmm. sign to keep my mind busy change of pace. So that's where I've been, you know, still working with financial planning firm to help them do a little bit of a redesign. But uh, yeah, we got custodian running and got, you know, happy customers there uh, doing this little project on the side. But now most of my time is on provider pool for now. And it's, I remember you saying to me, and this was, you know, a few months ago, um, we were talking just, you know, I think it was on the phone, we were talking, just catching up. And you said, you know, did you find when you kind of made that shift to Iron Forge that suddenly everything you did was now at a magnitude of 10x, you know, suddenly, you know, you're making this impact with your own company. Did you find that suddenly you're doing the same things, only you're generating, you know, 10 times the revenue, 100 times the revenue than you were doing with your own company? I know for me with Iron Forge, you know, we did a lot of the same processes that I've learned and, and run with different companies. And then when we implemented with Iron Forge, we were able to accelerate that growth. You know, for you, as you made that switch to provider pool, you have that expertise of working with different companies. Did you find you were able to come in and really just kind of grab it by the scruff of the neck and really make as much of an impact and, and even more of an impact than perhaps you thought you would do with, you know, from, from past companies? Totally. I feel like I've made a big impact. I don't want to sit here and say that all of our growth is because of me and my experiences, <laughs> you know, uh, very clever setup though, Christopher. But uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I think, like entrepreneurship is just incredibly challenging. And part of what makes it exciting is that each business faces its own challenges. And, but part of what makes it possible to get better at entrepreneurship is that you can take things you've learned from each step along Mm -hmm. the journey. I think one of the things I'm dealing with now, you know, just to speak about challenges as they keep emerging is 
once you start working for a business full time, instead of as a consultant, your perspective changes and you start to get really close to the business again. One of the things I was enjoying about being a consultant for Provider Pool was, you know, I didn't have any emotional skin in the game. I was just sitting here telling hard truths. Now I'm back in one of the driver's seats. It's like, dang, I don't, I, you know, you start to, you really care about the direction things are going. So it's just another lesson I'm trying to learn how to make that transition from both sides of the table. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a lot to learn. You and I have learned a lot. I know that we, you know, when we get together every year, half of what we're talking about is our wins. And then the much larger half is just about <laughs> like how much stuff that we've messed up, you know, and like how, how much we're looking to improve in the future. And uh, I feel like that's, you know, that's happening here as well. So it's been awesome. Well, I think that's the biggest thing with entrepreneurship as a whole. You know, everyone says, you know, you have to be insane to be an entrepreneur because you go into something where the chance of failure is above 90%. So you have to be a little bit insane even just to think about going into it. Then to go into it once and you fail and you think, okay, you know, it was fun. Now, now I'll go and get a real job. To go into it a second time, you're going in again. And it's not like the, 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 the statistic of, of not failing has got any smaller. It, it doesn't work like that. Every business still has the same statistics of failing. It's still above a 90% chance of, of failing every time you do the business. But you can take what you've learned to hopefully navigate some of those early you know, early roadblocks to, to, to make sure that you can get past that level. So, you know, whatever you've learned from the previous one, it does carry over to that next business. And that's why, you know, when, when clients and entrepreneurs that we work with, and that, you know, oh, we're, we're not sure if we want to make that leap right now. We don't know if it's going to work right now. At the end of the day, at some point you have to make the leap. Otherwise you're never going to know if it's going to work. And if it's not going to work, learn from it very early and then go into the next one. And then hopefully what you've learned will allow you to get a little bit further. And each business, you know, gets a little bit further. I think it says the average of seven businesses is when you, you know, eventually see success as an entrepreneur. Now I'm on my second and, and, you know, it's, it's, you know, touch wood, it's, it's going quite well at the moment, but it's, you, you know, you have the ability to, to, as an entrepreneur, continue to gather that knowledge. And it's almost a snowball effect so that as you fail more often, as you fail uh, on, on individual businesses or even on, you know, little tasks day to day, you're going to learn from that and then implement that hopefully a different way next time. And then that ultimately will lead you to success. But if you don't start, you're not going to get there. Not everybody has the Zuckerberg, you know, not everybody goes out, launches a business and it's a quote unquote massive success straight away. Now, it, there are a lot of hurdles and a lot of failures that I think you have to go through and when you start off as an entrepreneur, you have to be very aware of that. And, you know, you don't want to sugarcoat it. The chances are you're going to fail. And then from there, you can kind of pivot and, and, and learn from your mistakes going forward. Well, that's the thing is you decide what happens when you get knocked down, right? And it's like for every, you know, like you said, Zuckerberg, there's an equally successful Elon Musk who had five failed businesses before he got PayPal going. We just don't talk mm -hmm. about, you know, it's not, yeah. it's not cool to be on a plane when it's taxiing down the runway. The cool part is when you take photos from the air, right? So we talk about yeah. being in the air, you got to taxi down the runway. I think that was honestly one of the things I most appreciate about Iron Forge is that you all aren't so far removed from the startup side of things that you forget what it's like. You know, there's a lot of, especially talking about overseas development shops that have almost been corporatized. And there's just this fundamental disconnect between what it takes to run and grow a startup and how iterative that is. And what you all are doing is, like you said, I mean, you're now what VP of sales, VP of revenue. Uh, they give you some, some fancy title. It's but really, no, no, a well-deserved. Some, some, some made up title. Yeah, chief some, revenue uh, officer, something, double, something like yeah, that. Yeah, chief revenue, whatever, whatever. Yeah, just put a hyphen in there. It looks even more impressive. <laughs> no, but I mean, but you came, as you said, straight out of starting your own business. You know, so it's really nice to be working with folks on the technical side who you can consider peers and who have a deep and familiar subject matter expertise with entrepreneurship, the same way that a founder has subject matter expertise with whatever they're starting their business in. 
Because I think like you said, it's there, there has to be an understanding that a lot of entrepreneurship, a lot of successful entrepreneurship is experimenting and iterating and gradually improving. And then eventually it clicks and that's when you can really, you know, press the gas pedal. No, I, yeah, I, I agree a hundred percent with that. And that's why, you know, from our standpoint, when clients do come to us and they're at a certain stage, you can say, listen, I get it. Trust me. I really get it. I've been at that point. I know when you're, when you're, you know, even when you're initially fundraising for me, I hated fundraising. It was not something I, I ever enjoyed doing, um, but it's a necessity of launching a business. Now you on the hand, you were quite successful with fundraising and I'd like you to kind of just elaborate on some of the ways that you found success or, you know, or I'm sure, you know, there's an element of luck as well. Like how did you go out raising that initial capital when you have, really just notes on a napkin you know what was your story of, of fundraising and then you were you know successful with the arch grants and now you would provide a pool you're in textiles and you know you remember future founders and capital innovators and kind of just your journey to actually being able to fundraise and, and how you were able to successfully do that and learn from that so first thing i do want to acknowledge is like you said there is a lot of luck and circumstance involved and i think especially in the startup world we don't talk about that nearly enough is that so much success whether it's you know capital s success lowercase s success no matter what it looks like a lot of it happens because of circumstances and luck that are beyond our control. That said, I think there is a lot you can do to put yourself in a position to succeed. And on the fundraising side specifically, I think here, here are a couple tips that have really helped me. The first is just being authentic. I think that being your authentic self when you're pitching your business, no matter what stage it's at, makes a big difference because at the end of the day, investors are choosing to invest in you. You know, like you said, at the early stage, even once you've got a prototype, you're probably a pivot or two away from really hitting it big time. And the investors are trusting that you're going to be, you're the right, you know, captain to have on that ship because the ship's going to have to make some crazy turns and go through some turbulent water. Mm -hmm. I think the earlier you can just be authentic and put it all out there, well, A, show folks that you're comfortable in your own skin and you believe in yourself, but B, the relationships you're developing ideally with investors are going to go through ups and downs. You know, I've had to go back to folks the folks that invested in us and I've had to ask for more money because things were going well. I've had to ask for money because things weren't going well. I've had to tell them we're pivoting the business. I've had to tell them recently in this year, we were letting some of our full-time staff go because of COVID-19. These are conversations which are going to happen. Good conversations, bad conversations are going to happen for any founder, no matter how well you run your business. But it all comes back to how good is your relationship with the folks that you're asking to invest in you. And that all comes back to, in my opinion, being your authentic self so that you can get to know the real them and they can get to know the real you from day one. The other thing that I think really makes a difference is being able to communicate and tell the story of your business. And that doesn't mean telling some, you know, crazy drama filled tale about how you washed ashore and, you know, you're gasping for air and found this business idea written on a napkin floating in the water next to you. It's much more about being able to succinctly articulate what is the problem I'm trying to solve? Why is what we're doing different than other solutions that are out there? Why am I you know, qualified to be the captain of this ship? And then finally, why does money make a difference for us right now? And I think that, like you said, a lot of businesses, especially early on, require capital to get up and going, especially if there's some investment required for technology before you can be revenue generating. And a lot of businesses don't, you know, can be revenue generating from day one. These are like the unsexy businesses we think about, like someone who's mm -hmm. going to mow lawns. The only upfront cost you need is to buy a lawnmower. But for a lot of the types of businesses that you and I have been around, it requires some upfront investment. And so being able to answer the question, why does this amount of money at this point in time make a difference? I think is a really important one because entrepreneurs go in assuming, oh yeah, I need to raise money. Investors will get that. Investors are seeing, you know, hundreds of different opportunities every month, if not every week. Mm -hmm. You need to be your authentic self and you need to have a compelling story in order to stand out above the rest of the crowd and make them willing to roll the dice on you. 
And that's, and that's where I think with working with Iron Forge, having that prototype has really been the biggest differentiating factor. You go into it with a pitch deck, it's great. You can show, you know, hey, we're going to do this amount of sales. You have the hockey stick curve. It all looks great. But it's the same thing that every other of those hundred companies that I invest has seen that week is, you know, they all offer the same thing. When you have the prototype, you say, hey, this is the fixed price to actually develop this. This is exactly what it's going to cost. This is exactly how it's going to look. These are the clients that have already signed up for the beta trial, you know, using some smoke screen testing. You can show the traction and then you've got an accurate forecast of, right, this is when we actually expect to be able to make this much revenue. This is when we start to, you know, actually become profitable. That's really going to separate you because there is a, big gap between those that fundraise successfully and those that don't, you know, there is an element of luck involved, sure, on you know, where you're located, the, you know, the networks you have, the relationships, but there's also a huge, you know, gap between everybody that puts a pitch there together and sends it to, you know, buys an angel list online and just blasts it out and then goes, oh, I never got anybody. Well, yeah, no shit. Like you didn't, you're not, you're not doing it the right way. Whereas when you take those, those, those extra steps and you really, for, for me, what I would say to clients is when you invest yourself, when you put your own skin in the game, you know, when a client tells me, I don't want to pay for prototype because I want, you know, I want to raise capital to do that. All you can really say is good luck. And, you know, that's, that's fine. It's, it's a, you know, if that works, then fantastic. But I've not seen that very often when clients have been able to go out and fundraise everything before they actually start. At some point you have to have a bit of skin in the game to be able to really justify that this is a you know, business. Like you said, that you're, the, you're the, the right captain of the ship to be able to do that. And I think that ties also into when you think about what can set you apart, you know, any entrepreneur watching this is a successful founder is able to raise capital. A lot of it is developing empathy and understanding of what it looks like from the investor's side of the table. And one of the key ways that investors are evaluating opportunities is how much risk have the founders removed from this deal for me? Yeah. You know, are there customers that are signed up? Is there a waiting list? Do they have revenue already? Does the product exist? All of these are ways of reducing risk and making your opportunity more attractive to an investor. And one of the biggest risks that any investor looks at, especially for an early stage business, especially for a first or second or third time entrepreneur is, can they successfully translate their idea in this pitch deck into a working piece of technology, right? That's, a, that's something that I dropped the ball on with my first business. It happens to a lot of founders. And that's one of the hidden value adds, I think, of having a clickable prototype, of having something mm -hmm. professional like you all can do, is it de-risks the technology front in a way that non-technical founders really aren't capable of doing otherwise. You know, it doesn't matter how pretty your mock-ups are, the risk still exists that you can't translate beautiful PDFs into working software. A clickable prototype is probably the most substantial cost-effective way to actually de-risk that. And when we talk about what sets you up, you know, what puts out a green flag for an investor that will actually draw attention to you, being able to remove that risk at your first conversation is just an absolute game changer. Yeah, it is, absolutely. And then, and then on the, to, to kind of echo that even more, you have a fixed price bid to do it. And when you talk with an investor and, and you're going through your budget and you're going through your forecast and you say, hey, we've allocated you know, $150,000 to this. And you say, well, you know, how much are you realistically going to need? Like, what's it going to go over? And you can turn and say, no, this is guaranteed. The product is guaranteed for this price. And we have, we have some clients who have literally taken an Ironforge contract with the number and the price on and said, this is what I have to build this. I just need the capital to be able to do that. And that, again, has been, it's been interesting to see how that has changed the game for fundraising because it has suddenly allowed non-technical founders to be able to justify exactly what they're building and understand it and be able to explain it. Because like you say, otherwise, you're, you're kind of in this, you're out of your depth and really understanding how it's going to work and, and being able to convey ideas and sales is great. But if you've got nothing tangible, you're, you're always going to be kind of, your back's always going to be against the, the ropes trying to explain how exactly how that's going to work. 
I agree. And this, you know, it also, it, it touches on something that, that we had chatted about very briefly earlier, just about the equity uh, distribution in a company. And a lot of, you know, early first time founders, second time, third time founders don't appreciate how important it is to be careful with your equity. And one of the things that having a prototype or a quote, a fixed quote to build a product allows you to do is not raise more money than you necessarily need to at an early stage. It allows you to, instead of raising $500,000 and giving up half your company before you have a sale, which, you know, it's tough to raise that amount of money, but it's easy to, if someone offers you that check yeah. to look at it and be like, how would be dumb to say no to this. Instead, you can look at your waiting list of customers, folks that you know, that'll give you $3,000 in revenue, $10,000 in revenue. You can look at your quote from Iron Forge. It says, all right, I need $100,000 to build this. You can go out and raise dollars $125,000. Great. Maybe you've given up 10% of your company, maybe a little more, maybe a little less. But either way, you have actual real building blocks. You can start to put together a coherent financial mm -hmm. plan that will not only allow you to move the business forward, will allow you to move the business forward with you in the driver's seat and you in a comfortable equity position. Because what I see happen way too often is, you know, founders are torn between how much does this equity really matter? I, maybe it's worth giving it all up to get enough cash. You know, you got to decide what type of business you want to be running at the end of the day. Yeah, the, there is a high, high chance of failure. Like you had said, you know, they're saying over 90%. Every entrepreneur knows these table stakes going in, right? Mm -hmm. But you're playing for the chance that you win. You're playing for that 10% chance that you build a really successful business. And you don't want to have signed over 75% of your business before you have anything. Because when you do hit it big, you want to be able to benefit. I think that is yeah. one of the really hidden hidden benefits, the, the intangibles that, that an Ironforge guaranteed contract allows you to do. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I, I agree hundred percent. It's an entrepreneurs that give the equity. And one of the big red flags we even see with entrepreneurs is when they offer us equity on the first phone call. It's like, Hey, if you guys build it, we'll give you 20%. Well, if you're offering the equity, it's worthless. And we know that. And any, any investor is going to know that, you know, when we want equity to company, we will make an offer for it. And we do have equity in some of our clients. You know, that's something that we do from time to time. We also invest in some of our clients. You know, we do have that arm of the company. And when we, when we go after that, it's because we see real value in it, not because an entrepreneur has said, Hey, if you guys build that, I'll give you 20% of the company. And, and we're looking at it thinking, this is $200,000 worth of software and you ain't worth a million dollars right now. So it, and it's, by the way, you know, it would, it, and I think it's just really important is you iron forge as an you know, occasional investor equity holder. You don't want to be an investor at an early stage where the founder only owns 50% of their company or something. No. The incentives are totally screwed. I think that's a really smart reason why you guys would say no if someone just throws equity at you. It's like, no, no, no. That A, yeah. this is worth literally nothing right now. Yeah. But B, and more importantly, is you know, we don't we don't want to create a conflict of interest down the road where you don't have enough to, to stay invested. And and that's again where first-time founders just do not realize the importance of managing your cap table carefully. And no. Having a fixed quote allows you to make an actual coherent financial plan for your company and for yourself as a founder. Yeah, I know. Again, I think on this podcast, you know, this is a very good podcast for first time entrepreneurs to listen to because it really does touch on a lot of the mistakes that we see, you know, yourself as a consultant and obviously going through the process myself and been through the process and now working with, you know, hundreds of clients a year that are looking at going through this stage. It's you really do have to understand what these risks are and be able to to account for them before you make the mistakes. Because once you've made them, it's too late. You know, you get up your equity, you go up 30%. I don't know if you've ever tried to get equity back. It's not very easy. It's very difficult to get equity once you've actually issued it. Um, not a fun conversation. It's yeah. no, absolutely not. Um, from your 
perspective as the consultant, can you talk just a little bit about some of the services that you offer as a consultant as well, just in case anybody that is listening to this podcast would be interested in, in working with you, you know, after I'm going to hear your expertise on this podcast. Yeah, I, you know, it's nice because as you know, being a founder of, you know, unsuccessful business and then a successful business, it, you, you really develop, you learn how to be dangerous in a lot of different fields. And so what I've been helping clients with the most is a, just getting their operations in order. So how do we use our time and money more efficiently to help our business go farther? I've been helping with marketing and sales and client acquisition, everything from automated marketing campaigns to what are the scripts for our sales calls? What's the collateral we need to actually close a deal after a demo or to get someone to the demo stage. Uh, and then finally, you know, a lot of it is, building pitch decks, helping with website redesigns. I've got a couple designers who I've worked with for years now, and we just do sort of a bang up job of really helping with, all right, you want to go out and raise capital? Great. Here, we'll help you get your pitch deck together. We've got the expertise to know what points you need to hit. We'll help you turn your story and you know the vernacular you use to describe it into really tight, concise, punchy, attractive language, and then help you coach you up to put you in a position to succeed. Awesome. And anyone that's interested in any of those services, how can they get in contact with you? Is there a website, email? Yeah, the, the best, best way to get in contact with me is adam at directprogressgroup.com, directprogressgroup.com. And you can also go to directprogressgroup.com. That's where we have testimonials, case studies, and all of our consulting work. And the majority of the time these days, you can find me at providerpool.co, which is, of course, you know, the firm I'm devoting uh, the brunt of, brunt of my effort. And then what's your address if anyone wants to just turn upon your door? Yeah, no, that's uh, that's that's definitely available at this time. Uh, I gave it out on the last podcast with Chris, and uh, you know, he uh, he showed up with his wife, and uh, it it was it was a wonderful weekend. But I don't think we're going to repeat it. So uh, feel free to feel free to reach out to Chris with any uh, yeah further requests. Yeah, we'll um, yeah we'll be sure to put all the content information on the the blog post we do with this. Uh, we'll put your email address, website, telephone number, put all that information on there for you, so anyone can reach out to you with any questions. Um, but no, Adam, I mean, it, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. I think it's been a, a very informative podcast, you know, really for first time entrepreneurs. I think, you know, this is something where a lot of our early stage companies are going to see a lot of value in, in really understanding what the mistakes are that can be made and how to hopefully avoid them. And, you know, hopefully, you know, there's a couple of, of listeners out there that are looking at this and saying, maybe this is something that I need to consult an expert on and whether that's us or obviously with your um, consulting company to be able to help them actually get to that point of, of fundraising. Uh, we will be posting this video on podcast shortly. If you are out there listening and you are an entrepreneur and would like to be featured, you know, you can reach out to me directly at roach at ironforge.co. Otherwise, stay safe, stay healthy, and we will see you next time. Thanks, Adam. Take it easy.